A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment because science was on my side. Hey everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true stories of how science has affected people's lives. This week's story is from Alex Brown. The story was recorded in June 2013 at Bart's Pathology Museum in London. So, um, as you can tell from my accent, I grew up in France. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So, growing up in France uh, at school, we learn a lot of philosophy. That is the French way. Um, And we learn so much philosophy that it actually ends up leaking into every other subject as well. Um, So, when you're doing French literature, it's all Voltaire and Sartre, and it's all philosophy. If you're doing geography, there is a link. you end up thinking about, oh, what's the border between two countries, and why do we have borders at all, and what's the, what's, what is a boundary between two states, and should we even have these things? Or, um, we also had it in, in physics. Uh, physics became philosophy, not just the string theory stuff, um, but also thinking about the nature of time. Um, if you start trying to think of things moving, you can only do that if you refer it to uh, fundamental property of the universe, which we're all fascinated with, which is time. Um, and time would then creep into other parts of my life. I, I was a bored teenager, learnt the drums, and my line for my autobiography, if it ever gets to that, um, will be that the French less the um, the drumming lessons every week marked out the tempo of my life. And that's, <laughs> it'll sell. And um, time time is a weird thing. Um, it's one of these perpetual mysteries of, of existence. And when you're a bored teenager and not much is happening to you, you have lots of time to think about time itself. It's, it's quite one of those meta things. And I thought nothing much was happening to me, and it was just like, uh, drumming, philosophy and physics class, and philosophy and history class, and philosophy and geography class. So French. And then, and then I caught meningitis. Um, all of a sudden, lots of things were happening to me. I was being rushed into hospital, um, procedures happening to me left, right, and center, missing quite a fair old chunk of school and thinking, I wish I could be bored in philosophy class right now. Um, so that was when I was 16 and uh, gave me some treatments. I was left quite photosensitive, so I have sunglasses, even in the UK. Um, left with uh, hearing loss on one side as well. And then gradually got better over the course of about a year or so, and then it hit me again. Um, Which, if you know anything about meningitis, you have your head scratching, and the doctors would have been scratching their heads had they not been uh, trying to work on me quite so quickly. Um, So meningitis, in a nutshell, is an inflammation of the layers between your brain and your skull. Um, Your brain is big and soft and squishy, and to protect that from the outside world, you have this hard case around it, but you don't want it rattling around in there, so there's basically a bag of fluid. Um, but that bag of fluid is quite sensitive, and if it gets infected, uh, it's quite bad. <laughs> um, you're basically squeezing the brain, and that hurts. So here I am, 
in searing pain, rushed into hospital uh, for my second uh, lumbar puncture. Now, um, some of you are going, uh, if you've ever seen anyone have, if, if you've ever had or seen anyone have an epidural, you get some sense of it. You get a 10 centimeter needle, which a doctor once made the mistake of showing me, um, into your lumbar, or between your lumbar vertebra, the bottom of your spine. And this procedure is to get the liquid out, the cerebrospinal fluid, uh, if you like jargon, which is the liquid that's around your brain and it goes up and down your spine as well. Um, now, obviously, this is quite a, a big deal kind of procedure. They don't, it's not like taking your blood pressure. It's not a standard thing to do. Um, and there are certain risks involved, obviously. A whopping great big needle into your spine. It's fairly dangerous. So you have to... <laughs> I, I've always prided myself on being quite a good patient, and they give you one very simple instruction. It's do not move. Which, when you've got this pain and fear of bright lights, they call it photophobia, it, it almost feels irrational. Because, I mean, if I were to stare up there for a while, it would trigger it. And, it. and so one simple instruction was exactly what I wanted at the time. And do not move, that's a nice, easy one. And so they set me up on the bed um, with a canister of laughing gas. And laughing gas, uh, one of its properties is uh, that it kind of relaxes you um, makes you worry a lot less. And uh, one of the cool things about it is you can basically self-administer because if you've got the mask over your face and you have too much of the gas and it gradually replaces the oxygen in your lungs and if you were to keep on like this, you would eventually pass out and die. But because it makes your muscles go all limp, if you're holding onto the mask like this and you have too much, then it just falls off and oxygen comes back and you're fine. So it has kind of an error-correcting mechanism involved. So I'm there in searing pain with the simple instruction, do not move, lying on my side, um, because that's the standard way to do it in pediatrics. And even though I was 17, I was still on the children's ward. Um, and they're, they're trying to get this needle in, and it's not quite working. I'm just not even trying to think about that at this point. I'm just like, concentrate. And it tastes of strawberries for some reason. I don't know if that's the gas itself or the mask around, but I have, when I think back to this, I just taste strawberries and cream. I'm quite conflicted about whether that's a nice thing. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't quite working. So then they had to kind of curl me over more, and they got a couple of extra nurses. Because I was, I was a fairly big kid. I was 17. I was basically an adult. But they weren't quite used to this in this particular uh, ward. So then they had to bend me over further to try and get the vertebra to separate out so they could get a good angle on the fucking huge needle. And I'm still in searing pain and, and getting quite worried now because it's taking longer this time than it did last year. You know, and this isn't supposed to be happening at all. Again. <laughs> and then it's still not working, so they sit me up over the edge of the bed. And it's slightly tricky to show you without a bed, but my legs are sticking over the side. I'm still under the very strict instruction not to move. And I'm leaning into this mask, down my legs, and down my arm, in a fairly, in a fairly stable position. And I'm being told not to move. So by this point, I've had a double dose already, because they've been doing all their jiggery-pokery in my back, unsuccessfully. And the thing with laughing gas is that it, it slowly, it starts off, people do it recreationally. I mean, you can get it for, it's, it's Nitrogen dioxide, you get it for whipped cream canisters. Um, it gives you a fairly nice, if you like that kind of thing, kind of 
pins and needles in your hands and feet. I mean, it's, it's as if you've been sitting on your hand for a while. But after a while, it starts to build up, and the feeling starts to go from your hands and, and then your arms, and it creeps up slowly and then faster. Right up your arms, up your legs, and I'm still... I mean, I'm a total geek, and uh, one simple instruction, I think, I can do this, come on, you know. Life's difficult, but come, this is one thing, one thing. And of course, it's really important, and I'm just concentrating on do not move, and, and then I get distracted from do not move by the fact that all of a sudden I can't feel my arms or legs, and I couldn't move them if I wanted to. And this, this fear grips me all of a sudden because I'm realizing what's going on to me. I'm realizing what's happening. And this creeping darkness takes over. And it goes up my legs into my torso, and then my eyes close and I can't hear anything, and I am in hell, basically. There's no input anymore. Um, you can't feel anything, hear anything, so all your senses are gone. And it's, it's that special kind of darkness, not the kind of darkness from when you close your eyes. It's the kind of darkness that's back here. It's the kind of darkness that you don't even know is darkness. Um, and it's absolutely terrifying. And at that point, I had no idea how I was going to get out of this situation. Because I was still thinking, do not move. I, could, I couldn't if I tried, but... And knowing what's going on to you in that, in that situation is... is so terrifying, and my thoughts kind of started wondering of like, well, how long am I going to be here? Because I know eventually I'm going to suffocate and die on this on this strawberry-flavored gas. And I started thinking, hang on a minute, what, how long have I even been here? Do I need to do I need to start to somehow urge my body to move and risk risk problems for the sake of getting off? Because they don't necessarily realize what's going on. Because I can't even tell if they if they're holding me in place as well. It's, and it's this new sense of panic, and I've, I've no idea for the life of me how long that was, because your sense of time comes from things changing around you in the world. I mean, this is an idea that goes back to the Greeks. Um, and I couldn't tell whether things were changing, because I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't, and I couldn't hear or see, and even being bored in philosophy class, at least you can tell that stuff is going on. Even if it's not very much or very interesting, at least there's input. And that was lacking in this place. But of course, being good doctors, I was completely fine. They finished the lumbar puncture, um, took the mask off, laid me down really carefully, and then you have 24 hours of lying down and do not move. And the pain came back, and it was the most glorious pain I'd ever had. I was so relieved to be in such agony, because at least that was input. At least that was sensation. At least... I could feel something again, even if it was something I didn't really want to feel. I wanted to feel that. Just anything would do at that point. And, of course, the, the procedure was a success and I largely got better. And I've, I've, I've had three more lumbar punctures since then. They've all gone far more smoothly than that. Um, thankfully, because I would not go back there to save my life. But... What learning so much philosophy, even in the guise of all these other subjects, taught me was how to process what happened to me. And my now love of, of 
knowledge and philosophy and science and, and engagement with the world around me and, and sensation and, and even boredom now um, means that I've been able to come to terms with what happened in a way that I might not have had I not been bored in philosophy class in France all those years ago. Thanks. That was Alex Brown. Alex has a bachelor's in natural sciences from the University of Bath and will soon graduate with a master's in science communication from the University of the West of England. He currently works in administration in a lab in Geneva, Switzerland. He's also fascinated by the interaction between languages and science, which he blogs about on Do You Speak Science, hosted by Scilogs.com. For more science stories, take a look at storycollider.org, where we have archives of the podcast and upcoming events. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, and Ari Daniel Shapiro. The podcast is produced by Rose Eveleth. Additional help from Brooke Williams, Lena Groger, and Justin D'Ambrosio. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Bart's Pathology Museum for hosting the show, and to Fireworks for being better than a lumbar puncture. Thanks for listening.